Well, we're going to turn to the Bible, um, and we're going to have a look at our next section in John now. Um, and that, then at the end of our service, we'll have time to share the Lord's Supper together and to sing and to worship in response to what he says to us. So I'd love you to turn to John chapter 10. And this is our last sermon in John's Gospel for a while. We've been, um, since about September, we've been going through John 7, 8, 9, and 10. We've done four chapters, well done us, <laughs> um, in the last few months. Um, and we've seen some amazing truths about Jesus. We've, we've seen him at all these different festivals. We've seen him as the one who offers living water. We've seen him as the one who's the light of the world, the one who's come to bring freedom, true freedom. We've seen him as the one who can open the eyes of the blind. Over and over again, we've seen the sheer unique beauty of Jesus. And we're going to pick up in John chapter 10, verse 22, and finish off this section in John's Gospel. So if you've got it in front of you, then please do follow um, as I read. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered round him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said, I am God's son. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed and many people came to him they said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Why don't we pray? Let's pray and ask for God's help as we study. Father, please would you help us this afternoon? We pray that you'd wake up our bodies so that we are physically wide awake. We pray you'd wake up our souls so that we're spiritually wide awake, so that we're ready to listen. Lord, by your spirit, would you speak in a voice that we can hear, a voice that is so clear to us that we know it is you speaking to us through your words. Lord, please, we are eager, we are hungry, we are ready to listen to you. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, this afternoon, um, I want to invite you to come ice skating with me. Um, not, not in a literal sense, although that would be fun, but in a metaphorical sense. It seems to me there are two, at least two different ways you can ice skate. Um, the first one is that you can go to one of those ice rinks that pops up around this time of year, although sadly not this year, it appears, but those ones that pop up around London, you know, outside the London Eye and the Tower of London and, you know, the Natural History Museum. You know, these ice rinks pop up and you get your skates and you skate around, you have a happy time, but I don't think you ever consider what is really under your feet. You basically get it, right? It's not that difficult. There's about, I don't know, maybe three inches of ice, solid ice, and that you don't think about it. You just skate around and you have a happy time. But there's another way to ice skate. Supposing I said to you, come not to one of those pop-up ice rinks, but come to a lake, a deep, deep, frozen lake, a lake with a meter of ice on the top. As you skate on that, you would definitely consider what's underneath you. You, you, it would be impossible not to think about the depths that lie beneath you. You'd be thinking, I wonder what creatures lurk in the darkness below me. I wonder what's happening down there. You see, it's a completely different experience. Well, I want to encourage you to come and ice skate with me, not on a pop-up temporary thing that gets packed away in the spring, but on a lake. You see, what we're going to do this afternoon is that we are going to ponder truth. We are going to skate over some truth. But this is not superficial, three-inch deep truth. We are going to ponder things this afternoon that are unfathomably deep. We're going to be skating on the surface of theology and of ideas and of doctrines that are so infinitely deep, that we will never fully grasp them. But that's exciting. Because a three-inch ice rink may be a little bit of fun. It may entertain you for half an hour while you skate around with your friends, but it will make no lasting difference to you. But if we can get hold of this truth, this reality, something, a little bit of this depth, it might just change our lives forever. See, that's what we're about. So I'm sorry if you came for some kind of TED talk. I'm sorry if you came for some kind of you know, nice ideas that might superficially get you through the week or give you a bit of a pep talk to make you feel better about life. That's not what we're about. It's not what Jesus was about. Jesus said things that, that are just so profound. I want to invite you to come and see that. Come and skate with me. Come and skate on this lake of truth. And here is the fundamental idea that we're going to think through this afternoon, which sounds simple, but man, there's a lake of depth beneath this. This is the simple truth. Jesus' true sheep will believe in him. That's what we're going to see this afternoon. Jesus' true sheep will believe in him. Now, immediately you'll realize we're back in the sheepy-shepherdy world, where we've been for the last couple of uh, sermons. 
And that's because that's the overriding image of John chapter 10. If you go back to the start of John chapter 10, Jesus sets up this idea. uh, He sets up this kind of figure of speech at the start of John 10. So have a look at John 10 verse 1. Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. Right, there it is. Listen to it. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. Those are the three images, the gate, the shepherd, and the sheep. That's what John 10 is all about. Two weeks ago, we thought about Jesus as the gate, the connection point between heaven and earth, the one through whom we receive eternal life. We thought of Jesus as the gate. Last week, we thought of Jesus as the good shepherd, which only leaves the sheep for us to consider. And that is the main theme of this last section of John 10. We've done the gates, we've done the shepherd, now we're going to think, what does it mean to be a sheep of Jesus? What does it mean to be one of his true sheep? And so that's what he's unpacking. But it doesn't follow straight on. You'll notice in verse 22 that a few months have passed by. We're told about a new festival. Then came the festival of dedication. We've already had a few festivals in John John builds this section of his gospel around a number of festivals, what's often called the festival cycle. And all the way through, back to chapter 5, you get, there was this festival, then this festival, then this festival, and here's another one. But what is this feast, this festival of dedication? What, what, what does he mean by that? Would well, you know, this is the festival that Jews still celebrate today. It's called Hanukkah. And what this festival was all about was a couple of centuries earlier, there was a revolution. There um, There was an uprising among the Jews. And the Greeks, who were the uh, controlling empire at the time, the the Jews rose up and took control of the temple, took back their temple, and they rededicated it to the Lord. And it was a moment of real hope and optimism, a moment when the Jews thought, perhaps this is it. This is the moment when God is going to restore our land and restore our nation. And the rededication of the temple was symbolic, hugely symbolic of a political movement that was happening in Israel. But it sort of hadn't got anywhere. It got started, but it hadn't got anywhere and then the Romans came in and now are the occupying power and it just doesn't look like it's getting anywhere but every year they celebrate with this hope perhaps now is the time so there's this kind of overtones of political revolution and and given as well that John tells us it was winter yeah and I don't think that's an accident I think what John is doing is he's painting this picture of longing this picture of winter waiting for spring waiting for the revolution to come And so they come to Jesus and they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Are you the Messiah? Are you the one who's going to finish this revolution? Who's going to restore Israel back to all that it should be? Jesus, are you the Messiah? Could you tell us plainly? And we're going to look at these answers. But with that political background, we're going to see this, okay, this is the structure where we're going, okay? Two deep realities. Then we're going to see three awesome truths. And then we're going to say one great purpose. Okay? Two, three, one. Not as neat as it could be, I appreciate. There are neater ways to do the numbers one, two, three, but we're going that way. Two, three, one. 
Two deep realities, three awesome truths, one great purpose. So let's, uh, let's, let's see what's, what's Jesus' answer then. So here they are coming saying, are you this great political Messiah? Are you the one? You're not telling us plainly, Jesus. They accuse him of being unclear. You know, we don't believe in you, Jesus, because you're not really being clear enough. Isn't it interesting how often people blame their unbelief on God, on Jesus? If only God would do something, then I'd believe in him. Surely you've, you've heard this sort of reasoning, right? Surely we've had people say to us, and perhaps you even find yourself saying, God, if you would just do something, do a miracle or something, then I'd believe in you. And what we're doing is we're shifting our unbelief away from ourselves to God. We're saying that it's your fault. The, um, the atheist Bertrand Russell uh, was once asked, how would you explain your atheism if you meet God when you die? What are you going to say to him? How are you going to answer him? And Bertrand Russell's famous reply was, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. And that is a common cry of our world. There's not enough evidence. It's not clear enough. But the reality is that that is a convenient excuse, not a serious engagement. As Jesus is about to show them, they have all the evidence that they need. That is a superficial and shallow response to try and wriggle out of taking seriously the evidence that God has given. You see, the problem is not the lack of clarity, it is the refusal to believe. Jesus sees straight through it. So he says to them, verse 25, I did tell you, but you do not believe. See, Jesus shifts the blame immediately back to them. He says to them, you won't believe. That's the first deep reality. They don't believe. That's the problem. It's not a lack of evidence. They just don't believe. They refuse to follow where the signs point. Jesus tells them, he says to them, the works I do in my Father's name testify about me. I've given you evidence. John's gospel is full of evidence. He's turned water into wine. He's raised an official son. He's healed a paralyzed man. He's fed 5,000 people with a picnic. He opened the eyes of the blind. He's done miracles. They've got the signs. They just won't follow where the signs point. Because to believe is a scary thought for them because of what it might mean. So Jesus says, the problem is not in me. The problem is not that I've not given you the evidence. The problem is that you won't believe. That is the state of humanity. A rebellious refusal to believe. And at that point, you might say, okay, well, this makes sense. That's okay. But then Jesus says something that takes us much deeper. And this is where we begin to skate on Deep truth that might just make your head spin. But I hope that if we can see it, it will not only make your head spin, it will also make your heart sing. Look what he says. He says, you do not believe. But then he says, verse 26, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. 
You've got to see what Jesus is saying here. He says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. He locates the problem of unbelief in their identity. He doesn't say, um, he doesn't say you're not my sheep because you don't believe. He doesn't say that your belief means you can't be one of my sheep. You know, your lack of belief means you can't be one of my sheep. He puts it the other way around. He says, no, you're, you do not believe because you're not one of my sheep. And here is the second deep reality. And this will make your head spin. And that is that they can't believe because they're not one of his sheep. And so you have this truth that they won't believe. We've seen that. Jesus has made that perfectly clear. They are responsible because they won't believe. And yet he also says that they can't believe. You don't believe because you're not one of my sheep. It's, it's like the, um, there used to be a TV program on, I don't even know if it's on anymore, um, with Ainsley Harriet called Can't Cook, Won't Cook. It was kind of, when you were sick, you had a day off school, you know those TV programs, that um, you're off school, you're feeling a bit rough, and uh, you, you watch a cookery program. Well, Can't Cook, Won't Cook, it took um, someone who was unwilling to cook and someone who was unable to cook and put them on a TV show and made them cook. Can't Cook, Won't Cook. Well, here's what Jesus is saying about these people that he's talking to. He says, you won't believe and you can't believe. You, have, you are not willing to believe and you are not able to believe. Now, that raises big questions, but let me just show you that really is what Jesus is teaching in John's gospel. Come back to um, John chapter 6 with me. It, these are deep waters that we're skating over. But look at John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus says this as clearly as, as I think you can say it. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. You hear that? I, I, you've got to see this is, what, this is not my ideas. You've got to see this is what Jesus is saying in John's gospel. No one can come unless the Father draws them. You cannot believe in Jesus unless God does something in you. Unless God does a miracle within you. That is the testimony of John's gospel. In John chapter 8, Jesus will say, Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. You are held captive by our sin. We're not able to choose to follow Jesus, we refuse. You cannot make yourself one of Jesus' disciples any more than you can make yourself a physical sheep. You know, you could go to a field and kneel down and eat grass, but it doesn't make you a sheep, and no one's going to be fooled. Even a two-year-old walking by won't say, oh, look, mummy, it's a sheep. They'll go, why is that strange man eating grass? And in the same way, you cannot make yourself a disciple of Jesus by doing Christian-y things. You cannot become a disciple of Jesus just by going to church. It doesn't make you a Christian. You cannot be a Christian just by calling yourself a Christian. You need God to do something. You need God to draw you to Jesus. A miracle is required. And I think John has made that so clear in the way he set his gospel out. 
Because think what comes either side of chapter 10. Chapter 9 and chapter 11. And what happens in chapter 9 is that there's a man who's blind. He cannot open his own eyes. He needs a miracle to open his eyes. Jesus performs the miracle, opens his eyes so that he can see. The man is powerless and Jesus does a miracle. Okay, what happens in chapter 11? Well, in chapter 11, there's a dead man. And Jesus comes and says, Lazarus, come out. He can't come out. He has no power to come out. He's dead. He needs a miracle to bring him to life. And so what you have as Jesus looks at this crowd is he says, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. You can't believe. And there's God acts. Here are two deep realities that still hold true in our world today. Here are people who won't believe and who can't believe. Now the thing is, both of those things are true. You see, now our heads begin to spin. We say, yeah, but, 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 but how about this? And what about this? And we think, how do these two things work together? Listen, over and over again, the Bible teaches both these truths. And what you have to do is to hold on to both these truths. It's like springs on a trampoline. You know, in order to bounce on a trampoline, you've got to have springs pulling in opposite directions. You've got to have both springs. If you overpower one spring at one side, the whole trampoline goes off course. And so both these truths are what we need to understand what it means to be one of his sheep. So let me put this as clearly as I can. To be one of Jesus' sheep means that we need to make a choice and God needs to work a miracle and both of those things need to happen. And at this point we might say, okay, I get it now, I get it now. There's, you know, God does his bit, I do my bit and bosh, we're, we're happy then. Is it 50% each or maybe 60, 40, maybe God does a bit more. No, no, let me put it like this, okay? See how, you, see how this works. It is entirely your choice whether you believe in Jesus or not. It is entirely your responsibility. He comes to you and says, here are the signs. Will you believe in me? It is 100% your choice. You are responsible for what you do with Jesus. And it is entirely God's work. It is entirely God's choice whether you believe in Jesus. It is all of him. And now we find our heads spinning, but you have to hold both. You see, what happens if you let one get out bigger than the other, then you mess up everything. It's like when you have a caricature done. I don't know if you've ever had a caricature, caricature done of your face. Someone did one of me once, and they get, I felt it was unfair. I had a huge nose on this thing, and I felt like they over-exaggerated one feature, and all the other features were kind of shrunk down. But that's what happens sometimes with with our Christian faith. Sometimes we might overemphasize the choice that we have. We say, no, it's all down to you. You've got free will. You can do whatever you want. And God gets shrunk and shrunk and he's got nothing to do. And we end up denying that we're blind and dead and that we can do nothing. 
Because we want to be in control. We want to feel like we have the freedom to choose whatever we want. We don't like to be humbled and told that you can't do anything. We don't like to be told that you have to have a miracle before you'll believe in Jesus. It humbles us. But we just shrink God at that point. There are others who go so far the other way that they basically make out that it's all God. And you're just like this little robot puppet thing down here that has no choice or anything, no responsibility or anything. And so God gets bigger and bigger and you get smaller and smaller and you end up saying, well, how can I even be held responsible for my decisions? Either way, you get it wrong. But actually what we have to believe, what we have to understand is that Jesus, within one sentence, he says both things. Because both are true. And therefore, as you hear of Jesus, you have responsibility to respond in faith and to believe in him. And as you do that, you humble yourself and say, well, only God could ever have done that. Right, this is deep. Right, that's deep theology. We're swimming in the waters. (laughs) We've given up ice skating. We're swimming in the waters of God's sovereignty, God's knowledge, God's power. But it should leave us amazed that there's a God in heaven who would come and work a miracle in you so that you might know him. That's beautiful. And I know that we might find it uncomfortable sometimes, and sometimes it might challenge us. It might even offend us. But don't lose sight of the fact it is stunning that God loved you that much. And that leads me on to three comforting truths. We'll speed up. Three comforting truths. We've seen two deep realities Jesus shows. But now he says, let me tell you about my sheep. So look at verse um, 27. He says, my sheep. Oh, right, look, even that. Come on. Here is Jesus. My sheep. (laughs) My sheep. They're so, he's so tender. These are my sheep. These are the people who belong to me. These are the ones that I love. These are my treasured possession, my sheep. My sheep. You see, here's the intimacy. This is the first comforting truth. Our shepherd is an intimate shepherd with his sheep. He's close. He's near. He calls us his. It's like that bit in, which Jane Austen one is it? One of those ones, you know, with the people who fall in love. And he goes, you're no longer, which one is it? Yes, yeah, Mr. Knightley, that's it. You're no longer Mr. Knightley, you're now my Mr. Knightley. That's a terrible illustration. Anyway, my. Here is the my of Jesus. It just came into my head. Sorry, apologies. Here is Jesus saying, you're mine. (laughs) You're mine. My sheep. Listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. Do you hear the intimacy of language? This is no distant, abstract, theoretical relationship. This is a a relationship of the closest language where we listen for his voice. I can hear him. The voice. It's my shepherd. He knows me. I, I follow him. Shepherd, I want to go your way. And we may find ourselves thinking, I'm not sure I've ever heard the voice of Jesus. What do you mean by that? Are you saying that I'm supposed to hear some voice 
sit in a darkened room, hello, this is Jesus, your shepherd. No, that's not what it means. To hear the voice of Jesus means as we read of him in the gospel, as we read of his life, as we read of all that he does, as we read his words written for us, that we hear them not just as words on a page, but we hear them as words spoken to us. That we hear them as promise to us, as life to us. Listen to my voice. And as we listen to him, he knows us and we follow him. So we don't just passively listen to him. This is not a half an hour on a superficial three-inch ice, ice ring that we forget about when we go home. This is we follow. We don't passively listen. We listen so that we may say, Jesus, where do you want me to go? How do you want me to live? What do you want me to do? We follow his way. Delight to go his way. See, that's what Jesus says his sheep are like. Those who believe in him have this intimate relationship. And secondly, you see the security of being one of Jesus' sheep. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What security in those words? Here comes Jesus with a gift for you. A gift of eternal life. It's yours to take. It's free. It's free to you. It wasn't free to him. It cost him his life. But he comes and says, I give them eternal life. They will never... He uses such absolute terms, doesn't he? It's not like, well, you know, fingers crossed, they're going to be all right. They will never perish. Yeah, but what if someone comes? What if, a, you know, what if a storm knocks them off course? What if an enemy comes? No one will snatch them out of my hand, Jesus says. I'm holding them so tight that they will never fall. They will never be let go. That is what your shepherd says to you if you believe in him. And first we hear that and we say, oh, that's really lovely, isn't it? It's lovely that Jesus holds us. But then it's not long before the deep waters underneath the ice rink begin to stir. And we begin to, whoa, hang on a second. I know people who used to follow Jesus who don't anymore. Did, did, did Jesus let go of them? Well, what's going on with that? You know, perhaps they were almost Christians or not quite Christians. You know, were they his sheep or not? And we've got all these questions that start flying around our heads. We, we had a, um, <laughs> Linda and I had a meal this week, um, which we were, were enjoying. And Linda said, um, this meal is almost vegan, in a sort of celebratory note. Um, and that led to a discussion around whether something could be almost vegan. <laughs> so it was almost vegan, except for the bacon in it. <laughs> and it seems to me that vegan is probably a kind of absolute term, right? You either are or you aren't. Well, being one of Jesus' sheep is an absolute term. You either are or you aren't. It, it, it isn't that you're almost one of his sheep. You've almost made it. You were nearly there, and then oh, you, you fell. No, you're either his or you're not. And what Jesus says, and you've got to hear his words. Look, I know there's a bunch of questions. We're going, yeah, yeah, but what about people who fall away? Hang on. You've got to hear the promise first. Jesus says, I will never let you go. I will never let you go. 
No one will snatch you away. If you are hearing me and you believe in me, you are utterly, utterly safe. Can a Christian lose their salvation? No. Because in order to lose your salvation, you would have to be snatched out of the hand of Jesus. And he will not let you. He went to a cross to pay with his own blood for you. You are not going to be lost. You are not going to be swept away because Jesus has promised it. And we've got to, the trouble is we immediately want to go, yes, let me just caveat that with six theologians who want to tell you this, that, and the other. You've got to hear the comfort. He wants you to be sure. Now, there are places in the New Testament that warn us because Jesus is a shepherd who doesn't want us to get complacent. So he warns us and says, be careful. Don't turn away from me. Keep trusting me. Keep loving me. And we've got to hear those warnings. But the reason you can be so sure is because remember the first point, the deep realities we were saying, it was God who chose you. It was God who saved you. It was God who worked the miracle in you. So you can be sure. So what about those who turn away? I think what we can say about those who turn away from Jesus is one of two things must be true. Either they weren't his sheep in the first place. And tragically, that is the case sometimes. And that's even the case for Judas, who's standing there listening to Jesus teach this stuff. Or they are one of Jesus' sheep, and they've wandered away from him, and they will come back. That is true for everybody who's turned away from Jesus. You don't know which they are. But Jesus does, because he knows his sheep. And therefore, I think we can have great comfort and great hope. And I think of those that I love very dearly who have walked away from Jesus. And my great prayer is that they'd hear the voice of their shepherd and that he'd call them back. So be comforted. He knows you. He loves you. He's got you in his hand. And the third great comfort is this is guaranteed. Look at the guarantee, because by verse 28, you may say, well, Jesus, this all sounds very nice, but who do you think you are? Don't worry, I'll never let you go. Oh, thanks, Jesus. I mean, who are you? Well, look at verse 29. My father, who's given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch him out of my father's hand. And so here you have Jesus saying, by the way, when I'm talking about my work, I'm actually also talking about my Father. My Father in heaven. Oh, by the way, he's greater than all. I don't think that's like kids in the playground. My dad's better than your dad. Jesus wins that one, right? Jesus' dad is greater than all. My Father is greater than all. He made the whole universe with with a word, right? So he's great. And he's given you to me. Right? You're a gift from the Father to the Son. And the Father is holding you and will not let anyone snatch you from his hand. So you are being held by Jesus and by the Father. Surely that makes you feel a little bit safe. This is Jesus who went and gave his life on a cross for you, who paid for all of your sin so that you could be set free, so that you could be one of his sheep, so that you could be loved and accepted and welcomed and given eternal life forever. He perished so that you need never perish. This is Jesus, and he's holding you, and it's guaranteed. And in order for you to fall, 
if you are one of his sheep, in order for you to fall, it would require the sovereign, almighty, powerful God of the universe to lose his grip. Seriously? Three comforting truths. And that brings me to the last point, one great purpose. You see, what happens um, in verse 31, as Jesus makes this great statement about no one can snatch him out of my Father's hand, he then says, I and the Father are one. That's a big thing to say. And the immediate response, verse 31, again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. Again, because they've already done this in chapter 8. In fact, it's a fairly common response to Jesus preaching, uh, let's kill him. That's their response to this man. He's just said this lovely thing about, oh, no one will snatch over your hand, and we put it on posters. That was lovely. What a lovely thing. They want to kill him for it. They're so offended by what he says. And Jesus, which of my miracles are you killing me for? Was it the blind man or the lame man? Which one are you offended by? And they, they say to him, we're not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. They know exactly what Jesus is claiming. Some people say, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. Of course he did. <laughs> but none of them, they understand it. I and the Father are one. Oh, yeah, but he was just kind of claiming a sort of a, a oneness in, in purpose. And No, he wasn't. He was claiming equality with God. That is exactly what the crowd understood. They knew what he meant. But look what Jesus says. This is fascinating. One great purpose. Jesus, rather than say, well, I am the Son of God, so shut up, which I might have been tempted to go for that sort of line, or I am the Son of God, let me bring down lightning and destroy you all and show you. Instead, he's this most bizarre reply. Look what he says, verse 34. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent him into the world? Why does he say that? I think this is, I think this is really beautiful. I think what Jesus is doing is he's diffusing the situation. He's speaking to take the heat out of the situation. You see, he gets that as Jews, they know there's only one God. They've been taught it. They repeat it day after day. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God. And then here comes Jesus saying, oh, and I'm God. They go, whoa. Jesus knows it's hard for them to understand. And so what Jesus does is rather than condemn them, he pleads with them and he tries to persuade them to believe. And so he argues from the Old Testament. He sort of uses this slightly odd um, quote from Psalm 82. It's talking about Israel. And, and, and in Psalm 82, they're kind of referred to as the sons of God. So Jesus says, well, it's not that bizarre, this phrase, son of God. You've even got it in your Old Testament. So if Israel could be called sons of God, well, why not the very one whom God has sent into the world? Surely son of God is a good title for him. Jesus is diffusing the situation. He's trying to say to them, no, no, don't. Don't lose sight of me. And then he says, verse 37, do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. Look, he says, I know you don't believe me. I know that what I'm telling you is really hard for you to understand. But even if you don't believe me, at least look at the signs that I've done. 
Look at the miracles. Look at the healings. Look at the wonderful works that I've done. Believe them. Please believe. Now remember where we started. Jesus says you can't believe. And yet he still pleads with them to believe because it's as Jesus speaks that those who are his sheep will listen and will respond and will hear him. You see, Jesus' great desire is not to condemn you. It's not to hide stuff from you. It's not to confuse you. His great desire is that you would believe. That's it. That's his one great purpose. It's why John wrote his gospel, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. His one desire is that you would believe in him. That is what true sheep do. They believe. They say, yes, Jesus, I want you to be my shepherd. You are the Son of God who loved me and gave your life for me. But they don't listen. Verse 39 Again, they try to seize him, but he escapes. Jesus then leaves them. It's tragic. He leaves them. He crosses the Jordan. And look what he does when he gets to the place where John had been baptizing. As people come to him, look how it ends in verse 42. In that place, many believed. That's what Jesus is all about. He's about calling his sheep to believe in him. So here's my simple question for you as we finish. As we've skated over these deep waters, it's a very, very simple question. In fact, it's a question that you know exactly what it is. You know what I'm about to say. Do you believe him? Do you believe that Jesus is this good shepherd? And my guess is that probably in many of our hearts in our room, if we're engaging with this right now, many of us are thinking, well, I... I think I do. I, I, I hope I do. I'm not sure. Maybe I don't. I think I do. I hope I do. Let me tell you, right? If that's you, if you're sitting there thinking, I think I do, that's it. That's enough. Jesus is not looking for people who go, yes, Jesus, I believe without any shadow of a doubt that you're the Son of God. He's looking for people who say, Jesus, I'm not, I'm really struggling, but I, I do believe It feels really weak and really fragile and it feels like it's flaky and it feels like some days it's there and some days it's not. But Jesus, I do believe that's what he's looking for. I want to encourage you. He's not expecting you to have superhero faith. In fact, if your faith is as minuscule as a mustard seed and as flaky as a flaky thing, that's enough. That is faith. Faith that you would not have were it not for a miracle that Jesus has worked in your life. Faith that you would not have were it not for God opening your eyes to see Jesus. Take heart. You're one of his sheep. Believe him. Trust him. And as you go on, the more you believe and as you live, you discover you can trust this shepherd more and more. And then you discover that he will take hold of you. You know, my my faith is so often weak and fragile. But my confidence is that he will hold me fast. So when I fear my faith will fail through life's fearful path, when my love is weak and frail, he will hold me fast. He will hold you. Take heart. And if you're sitting here, you say, I've never believed in Jesus, I don't believe in him. Or even this afternoon, 
Jesus is saying to you, come believe in me now. Whatever you do, don't be tempted to go, well, I don't want to believe, so I'm not one of his sheep. It's his fault he didn't call me. Yes, he is. He's calling you now. Don't you dare make excuses. Don't you dare blame him for your refusal to come to him. He's calling you now. He loves you. He wants you. Come follow him. Find a shepherd who give his life for you and then will hold you for the rest of yours. Why don't we bow our heads and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we worship you this afternoon because Jesus is the shepherd. We worship you because we get to be called his sheep. And Lord, many of us sitting here in this room would confess that often our faith is so frail and so weak and we wonder sometimes if we really believe or not and we find ourselves wavering. Lord, we pray that we would believe. Lord, even in our unbelief, please overcome our unbelief. Please hold us fast. You promise that you will hold us. And Lord, many of us have friends and family who have wandered away from you, who've turned from you. Lord, we pray that you would hold them. We pray that they would be your sheep and that you would call them, that they'd hear the voice of their shepherd and say, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you. Lord, we ask that you would please help us. In Jesus' name, amen.